It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com The Telegraph Podcasts I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Bravery takes you through the most unimaginable hardships to finally reward you with victory. We need a military strategy for Ukraine to gain a decisive advantage on the battlefield, to win the war. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. The history of Ukraine and Russia is a subject that has come up again and again on this podcast. Good history and bad history underpins how all of us understand the origins, reasons and justifications for the ongoing full-scale invasion. One guide, for me, is Ukrainian historian Serhii Plokhi. Plokhi is Professor of Ukrainian History and Director of the Ukrainian Research Institute at Harvard University. His books, From the Gates of Europe to the recently released Russo-Ukrainian War, are essential reading for anyone seeking a deeper understanding of Ukraine and its history. I spoke to Professor Plocky recently about Ukrainian and Russian history, parallels with the Second World War, and his new book. Here is our conversation. Serhii Plocky, thank you so much for your time. Let's start at the beginning. In your book, you, you open your book, The Russo-Ukrainian War, at 7pm December 25th, 1991, when Mikhail Gorbachev, president of the Soviet Union, resigns, triggering the dissolution of the USSR. Can you tell us about that moment? Why was it so significant? And why did you choose to start your story there? Well, first of all, thank you very much for having me on podcast. It's, it's, it's a real pleasure and honour. And uh, the book indeed starts with the events on the Christmas Day in December of 1991, when Mikhail Gorbachev declared his his resignation. He was the first and the last president of the Soviet Union, and with his resignation, the fall of the USSR became final. Uh, but uh, for me, this is, was a continuation, um, not even the end, but continuation of a much more longer story. The story that started with the disintegration of the Russian Empire, back in 1917 and 1918. And then most of us, including myself at that time in 91, believed that uh, that process was over. The Soviet Union fell apart, the the republics were going their own ways. And uh, really, uh, it was the end of history, so to speak. If not in Fukuyama's understanding that that was the final victory of liberal democracy, but at least in terms of thinking about the empires and the Russian Empire and then its successor, the Soviet Union really controlled one-sixth of the uh, space, so that was the collapse of one of the largest empires. And what we have today is, uh, it's caught many observers by surprise in terms of the understanding of the origins of this war, what I'm trying to say in this book is that the current war, Russo-Ukrainian war, I call it, is a continuation of the story of the disintegration of the Russian Empire. It fits um, the, the, the profile of many other wars that were fought over the last few centuries, the wars of succession. It can be called the Soviet War of Succession or, or Russian Imperial War of Succession. So... That's why I decided to start the book with, with uh, Gorbachev's resignation speech. 
Looking back into history then, as you've said then, you see this as a continuation of imperial wars. But thinking about Ukraine as a nation and, and as a society, what moments would you highlight from history that show the development and the emergence of a Ukrainian state and identity? Ukrainians uh, trace their origins to uh, the me- medieval state, one can call it medieval empire, called in historiography Kievan Rus. It was uh, one of many states created in Europe with the help of the Vikings uh, back in the 9th and 10th centuries. And the capital of that state was in Kiev, the base capital of Ukraine. So you can see uh, a lot of monuments uh, in, in Ukraine related to Kievan Rus, and also the buildings that were constructed at the time of the Kievan Rus. The uh, St. Sophia Cathedral is one of them. The, the Kievan Caves Monastery is another. And the uh, Ukrainians uh, uh, have um, as their court of arms, court of arms of Kievan princes, and it's uh, trident. So uh, there is a lot in, in Ukrainian history, but also in Ukrainian historical mythology that brings them all the way back to the Viking state of the medieval period. Another important, very important stage in the history of Ukraine was mid-17th century. At that time, as the result of the Cossack uprising, a new state was created, a Cossack state, uh, with Kiev being one of its major centers, certainly a princely and capital and capital of the, the ecclesiastical, the, the religious center was there as well. And uh, finally, then the story goes into the 19th century, at the beginning of the 20th century. And 19th century, that's the time when the key institution in Kiev becomes the university. And it's the professors of Kiev University that create the uh, put together the first manifesto the the, the first really uh, modern ukrainian national project in that sense um, Ukra- modern ukrainian national project comes into existence around the same time as the national projects of neighboring states uh, uh, polish and and uh, a little bit later russian but it's it's formation of a very different modern national ideology in the 20th century, Ukraine, five times different forces tried to declare Ukrainian independence. The, the states that declared that independence last from a few days to a few months to maybe a little bit more than a year. But the fifth time when in 1991, a few months before Gorbachev's resignation speech, Ukrainians declared it independence, that, that independence lasted. And then in first in 2014 and then in 2022, the really the durability of, of Ukrainian independence was what was questioned, or there was an attempt certainly of taking away that independence from from the Ukrainian state, from the Ukrainian people, by Russia, post post Soviet Russia. Thank you very much for that overview. Could we talk a little bit about the 1990s? What struck me from your book is that. The new Russian state and the Ukrainian state faced many of the same challenges, certainly analogous challenges politically and economically. Why do you think they developed so differently? Uh, This is an excellent question, because at the time, I go back to to Gorbachev's speech, there were really high hopes that Russian democracy would succeed. Uh, Boris Yeltsin, the president of Russia, captivated minds of many in the world when he got on the tank in front of the Russian parliament and uh, declared that that the, the, the reaction uh, would not succeed. At the same time, Ukraine was led by quite conservative, I would say, uh, party leaders and party apparatchiks. But by the beginning uh, of this uh, millennium and this century, we see a very different picture. Uh, Russia really becomes more and more authoritarian. While Ukrainian democracy survives, Ukraine becomes one of very few post-Soviet states where the uh, flirtation with democracy of the 1990s turns into into relatively stable institutions associated with the democratic government. And the question that you asked is why? I try to answer this question as a historian, and I look at the different different trajectories of uh, Russians and Ukrainians in the course of the, not just previous 
years or decades, but even centuries. And the answer that I give is is different answer to Russia from those that are the, the answers that I have for Ukraine. In Russian case, Russia really suffered in, in the minds of its leadership, in the minds of its people, a major defeat in 1991. So that was the Cold War that was lost. It was uh, perceived as loss not only of prestige and superpower status, but also loss of the territory. The outer empire of the Soviet Union in Eastern Europe certainly collapsed with the collapse of the Berlin Wall. And then the Soviet Union that consisted of, of 15 republics, Russia was one of them, also fell apart. And uh, Russians really in the middle of the major economic turmoil of the 1990s, uh, they went back to the tried ways of dealing with the issues of problems, and that's creation, creation of authoritarian state. So Russians really didn't live for any prolonged period of time in anything but some form of autocracy. So, and uh, historically, Russian population, Russian elites were closely linked and associated with the state. They couldn't imagine their existence without state. In Ukrainian case, it's different. Ukraine came into existence as a modern state out of the territories that were controlled by three different empires, the Russian Empire, the Habsburg Empire, and the Ottoman Empire. So there was a lot of diversity uh, among different Ukrainian regions, and it created a situation of a sort that you have in the colonies in North America, where there was no one religion that could unite the settlers, and they created a form of government where they had all to compromise. And that's, that's what happened in Ukraine. On the top of that, Ukrainian national project came into existence in opposition to a state as, as, as an institution. And uh, for Ukrainians, it was very difficult to learn how to live in your own state. So very, very different historical trajectories. That's I, how I see the, the really key reasons for uh, post-Soviet Russia and post-Soviet Ukraine and choosing different paths. In Russian case, it's the path of uh, autocracy and now probably bordering on, on some form of dictatorship. And in, in Ukrainian case, this is this is a democratic path and Ukrainians today are defending it the best they can. Coming into the 2000s then, you write about the Orange Revolution. The quote is, the Orange Revolution puts Ukraine and Russia and subsequently Russia and the West on a collision course that would eventually lead to war. It seems like one of the sort of prime causes in recent history for what we saw in 2014 and then in 2022. Could you talk us through your thinking there? What was it about the Orange Revolution that had such an impact? The Orange Revolution were a mass protests um, centered on Maidan. Maidan is Ukrainian for the square, central square in downtown Kiev. The term itself, it's Turkic, which uh, again stresses Ukraine's multiple cultural roots and historical path between the Habsburgs, Ottomans, and the Russians. So the protests uh, were there because Ukrainians, a good part of the active society, believed that the elections, the presidential elections, were stolen. And they were stolen by the candidate that was backed, publicly backed by Russia, by Vladimir Putin. Putin personally came to Ukraine to campaign on behalf of that candidate. His name was Viktor Yanukovych. And Ukrainians revolted and uh, eventually demanded the new round of elections, which wouldn't be fair. And in those, in that third round of elections, it was the candidate that was pro-democratic and also pro-Western, Viktor Yushchenko, who had won. And a few months before before the elections, he was poisoned by a substance that many believed came from Russia. So for Vladimir Putin, it was a major defeat, partially because he himself backed Yelukovich so so strongly visited Ukraine, as I said. 
model once in doing that. But uh, the, the main reason was that um, Ukraine uh, set a precedent or set an example, rather, that in Putin's mind, the, Russian, the Russians could actually follow. So the uh, form of the so-called controlled democracy, well, in reality, the soft autocracy that uh, developed in Russia under Boris Yeltsin and then was passed to Putin, was now in major danger. If actually people could go on the streets and challenge the <laughs> the results of the elections, so immediately what we see happening in Russia is creating of a sort all sorts of the organizations. So mimicking is a sort of a civic society and mobilization that happened in Ukraine, but now it was done by the Russian government with the support of the Russian government. So all sorts of youth groups were created. One of them was called Nashri or ours. So for Putin, who uh, believed and stated more than once that Russians and Ukrainians were one and the same people, the uh, Ukrainian protests really presented a threat to the stability of his regime. So presented a threat of the sort that NATO would and and, and never really re- really presented, and finally there was a third very important component to that entire story. Ukraine stayed democratic after the Orange Revolution, while Russia became increasingly more authoritarian. What that meant also that Ukraine, uh, for Ukraine, the doors to the European institutions remained open. Because, uh, let's say, any sort of the membership in the European Union depends on the country being democratic, or at least being viewed democratic, recognized as democratic. And Ukraine was recognized as democratic. It, it was maybe a messy democracy. It wasn't perfect, not fully developed. But Russia was not. And uh, that also created um, for Russia a geopolitical challenge. Democratic Ukraine could join the West when the authoritarian Ukraine would stay close to Russia. So all this, all these three factors together, so the threat to the to the Putin's regime by by example, with the issue of the geopolitical opportunities that existed for Ukraine and didn't didn't exist for Russia as as, as the result of the Orange Revolution. That uh, eventually, eventually, at least in my opinion, but also in opinion, uh, I would say of the majority of, of uh, scholars uh, looking at the region, studying the region, uh, set the two countries on a very, very different course. Eventually, eventually, it led to them. Could we talk a little bit about the people involved in this? Not necessarily on a personal level, but I mean, something that struck me in the last year and a half doing this job is that there's a very different kind of personality in public Ukrainian life, thinking of people like Zelensky or Zeluzhny or, or people in civic society, very, very different from the 90s um, in terms of outlook, like Kushmar and Kravchuk. They come from completely different worlds, economically, socially, politically. And, and it seems like there's been a huge shift. I mean, a British example might be that there's a big shift, I notice, in my age group of people who grew up in the Troubles or in the time of the Troubles in Northern Ireland and people who didn't. And there's just completely different perspectives on politics and, and on identity and things like that, I, I think I sense in the UK. I think I see something similar in, in Ukraine, with the dividing line being the fall of the Soviet Union. Is, is that something you see? And would you talk a little bit about that? How are these people different? And what does that mean for the country? They are very different. And they, they, they were not so much different for maybe the first 20 years of the post-Soviet developments. At the beginning of the 2000s, the president of Ukraine was uh, Leonid Kuchma, the so-called Red Director, the director of the largest missile factory in in, in Europe. And his counterpart, uh, when Kuchma was first prime minister and then president, his counterpart on the Russian side was Viktor Chernomyrdin. So another another this product of the Soviet uh, command economy. And the, they not just they spoke Russian; they they came from the same culture, and uh, that that started to change with the beginning of two uh, thousands, with the Orange Revolution already of two thousand four, because President Viktor Yushchenko, who won in in uh, the elections, fair elections in two thousand four, 
already represented a different generation. He, he really was uh, not part of the Soviet elite at the time of the fall of the Soviet Union. He was too young for that. He also was working somewhere in the provinces. But the real, real change came really with the election of Zemensky. And for Ukraine itself, it was also a sort of a revolution in which Zelensky was supported by the younger electorate, the, the, the people who already grew up after the 1991, who really didn't have much in common with the, with the Soviet experience before 1991, and not having much in common with the Soviet experience also meant in practice having little in common with Russia, or for that matter with Kazakhstan or Uzbekistan. That was extremely important. And uh, in Russia, you have the generation of Putin and people around him, more or less of the same age, who were already mid-level, either apparatchiks or members of KGB at the time of the fall of the Soviet Union. So for them, the fall of the Soviet Union, it's, it's also a personal tragedy. And um, Putin was publicly talking about that, saying that it was the largest geopolitical catastrophe of the, of the 20th century. So it is, it, it is also a generational clash. When we look at Russia and look at the protests that were taking place in, in, in Russia in the course of the last uh, maybe 10 years, what we see is that it is the younger generation that supported Navalny, that really revolted against Putin's regime and continuation of the old politics. So... Certainly, what you suggested, I don't discuss this in the book, but again, thank you. Thank you very much for asking this question because it is, it is a very important part of the story. It's, it's, it's a uh, really clash uh, and battle between different generations. The, the last Soviet one and maybe the first or one of the first post-Soviet generations. Your book, when you come to the war in 2014 and then the full-scale invasion in 2022, you're often switching between talking about Putin and his advisors, his team, what they're thinking, their views, their decisions, and then Zelensky and his team and what's happening in Ukraine. When you were doing your research and writing this, did you find that you discovered more or discovered different things about these characters, about Vladimir Putin and Zelensky? What was new to you when you were writing this? Do you feel like you have a, a deeper grasp on their motivations? Or is there anything you think now that maybe you wouldn't have thought you know, a year ago before writing this? Yes, certainly there were discoveries, there were numerous discoveries that that's what make research and writing of books so rewarding. Because you you learn new things and and you learn by 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 discovery. So with Vladimir Putin, I think the the uh, one of the interesting things that I I didn't didn't know before that or maybe didn't didn't fully realize was really his obsession with the Russian Russian intellectuals of the imperial era and their writings. And a lot of what he is saying, and apparently he believes in that, like Russians and Ukrainians are one and the same people, it comes straight from the history textbooks of the 19th century imperial Russia. And he is, he is clearly someone who tries to use the outdated imperial ideology to move forward, the ideology of the 19th century to move into the 21st century. And um, in that sense, he is, he is a hostage of that, I would say, bad, bad history. So when I was starting research, I for me, the question was whether, whether he believes in this or not, or he just uses this for particular reasons to, to, to achieve this and that goal. And my answer on this book is that, yes, he believes in things that he is saying, or at least uh, some basic things about the non-existence of Ukrainians as a nation. Uh, but he also is quite flexible and maybe opportunistic, because his overall goal is taking control of the entire Ukraine, building a powerful Eurasian block of countries. Uh, but if that doesn't work, he is prepared to go for, for Plan B. And Plan B, both in 2014 and in 2022, has been just capturing the, the territories that he considers to be Russian historically. 
and he can go between these two models back and forth. So that was uh, interesting for me. For Zelensky, I found for myself an answer about how he managed to become such a successful war president, because everyone looked at him as a basically former comedian, right, with, with zero experience in politics. And uh, that, that, that was true. He had no experience in politics per se. But what I discovered was that he has this talent that is really transferable from the theater stage or stage where he performed to the political stage. And uh, he uh, understands and feels the audience. And this is very important for an actor, for important for someone who performs on the stage. This is extremely important for for politician. And in that sense, he is someone who reflects and amplifies the attitude of his people, the spirit, the thoughts. He came to power and continued on, on that track almost till the start of the war, talking about the peace. And, and he meant he, he meant what, what he was saying, because that 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 was the demand of the of the Ukrainian public. But then the war started, and uh, he became the voice for the nation that was fighting back, for the nation that no one gave Ukraine more than a few days and a few weeks to survive. And Ukrainians fought back, and and Zelensky became the leader of that nation. And looking at these different discoveries for Putin and Zelensky, there is something that I found more important than the personalities per se. It's about the political models and political regimes that exist in those countries. If for Putin, there are particular ideas, approaches, imperialistic ones are the most important one. And then he tries to bring the country into the place where eventually it becomes a nightmare, this war. For Zelensky, it's it's the, the, the other way around. It's it's basically listening to the people and understanding what people what people want, and then and then becoming their leader in that way. So very different leader in terms of generations, but also in terms of the modes of operation and 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 the ideas that drive them. Can I ask? You've obviously done so many interviews to talk about this book, and also just in general over the past year and a half. Do you? still find sort of myths or misconceptions about Ukraine, about Ukrainian society from foreigners, from Westerners or, or whoever, really? And if so, what are they? What, what are the sort of the big things you're always finding yourself saying, no, you know, this is more complicated, or no, that's not quite right, actually this. Do you still find that? What are they? Well, well one, one theme that was uh, extremely persistent around the year 2014 and then, and then after that as well was... Uh, the theme about Ukraine being really the place where the radical nationalism was on the rise. The Azov Battalion of 2014, everyone was was talking about that, and that was also part of Putin's propaganda campaign, which was, I would say, got a lot of tracking in the West in general. And it got a lot of tracking in the West because the issue of radicalism and and nationalism and and xenophobia uh, became extremely important uh, uh, factors in the Central European, West European, to a degree, American as well politics. And uh, looking at Ukraine, the the uh, Western societies also were asking the, the questions that were important for them at home. The story of Ukraine is that there is no one single nationalist party in the in the Ukrainian parliament since 2014. There was one during before 2014 during the President Yanukovych times, uh, but not after 2014 because they can't cross the five percent threshold. And uh, for me, the, 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 it's not just mis- misperception, but it's also an important question that I, I think worth researching academically why in the country that is at war since 2014, uh, the radical nationalism is so weak. While in a lot of countries in Europe, some form of right, uh, sometimes radical right, is, is pretty close to winning winning the national elections or presidential elections. So that's something that, that I think was the key misunderstanding of Ukraine. Another one was 
about corruption. And uh, again, uh, in, in the first of nationalism, I'm not saying that there is no radical nationalism in Ukraine. I'm just saying that let's let, let's try to understand why it is so underrepresented and not as important as we believe. And in terms of corruption, again, the question is not that there is no corruption in Ukraine, but uh, how the state that allegedly was so corrupt turned out to be so durable and, and had so much support of the, of the people and population and uh, continues to exist under the missile attacks and, and so on and so forth. So it looks like that with uh, focusing on nationalism, focusing on corruption, we really missed some very important parts of the Ukrainian story that came to the fore after the February of 2022. And um, that's uh, the, the task for all of us to look at that, to understand that. And for us, people who research and write, really to present to, to a broader public good explanations for that phenomenon. At the end of the book, you write that there are clear indications that the Ukrainian nation will emerge from this war more unified and certain of its identity than at any other point in its modern history. Could you talk a little bit about what you think these indications are? What we've seen in Ukraine since the start of the war, and the war started not in 2022, but in 2014, with the Russian takeover of the Crimea, you see on the one hand loss of the of the territories, Crimea and uh, eastern part of Ukraine, Donbass. Those were areas where this Soviet nostalgia and uh, pro-Russian sentiments were, were the highest. So Ukraine became much more unified after losing those territories. It also became unified because of the war and the need to, to mobilize. And uh, the society, Ukrainian society, civic society, for the first time in its history since 91, found a, a, an ally, a partner in the state. Now the state found an ally in the, in the civic society. And um, that produced the sort of resistance that we got in 2022. Unity came on a number of levels. I can tell you that as someone who writes, works on our history of, of Ukraine, of, of Eastern Europe, white books became very popular in Ukraine after 2014. So it wasn't the, the case before 2014. And it's, it's just reflection of a much broader trend. You see political map of Ukraine changing. If before 2014, every presidential elections produced more or less the same map, Ukraine was divided between quote-unquote pro-Western forces and quote-unquote pro-Russian forces, now almost in, in the middle of the country. The elections, presidential elections of 2014 and then presidential elections of Volodymyr Zelensky in 2019 produced a very different map. Both candidates being different candidates running on different platforms, but both of them actually, they got support in the absolute majority of the writings. So the, the map that emerged from those elections was map of unified Ukraine. So cultural unification, political much more solidarity, and um, I, I talked about society finding the state and state finding the society. One of the reforms that um, Ukraine introduced after 2014 was the reform of the um, local government. It was the reform that Ukraine agreed to introduce at the time when Russia was pushing for so-called federalization of Ukraine, trying to make it ungovernable. But by going for the reform of the, of the local government, Ukraine became much more governable than it was before. And the much more power was actually transferred from the center to the local authorities. And given that local authorities, Ukraine remained to be a democracy, the, the, the local mayors and, and members of the councils and so on and so forth, they ended up to be, to be really representatives of the, of the state in the eyes of people who elected them. And the mayors became one of the main heroes of the first months of the resistance in Ukraine. They were targeted by the Russian forces, they were kidnapped, they were tortured, some of them were killed. They also led the, this mass peaceful protests against the invader Russian troops 
but uh, people were roaring against against uh, the mayors and other re- representatives that they elected. So that was a very very clear symbol for them of the of the democratic institutions of the democratic state and uh, the idea of democracy, the idea of being able to elect, reelect, or not elect the representatives who didn't prove themselves well. That's a very important idea for our Ukrainian understanding of freedom, understanding of democracy, and this is one of the values that certainly Ukrainians are fighting for today. Zooming out from that aspect of politics in Ukraine, you chart towards the end of the book the fruitless efforts really of, and you call it old Europe, to find a peace settlement. What do you think their failure to do that shows us about the old European powers? And I think what's interesting is their misunderstanding of Russia and the nature of Vladimir Putin's administration. Why did it take them so long, do you think, to understand what they were dealing with? There can be a number of answers to that question. Uh, I approach it as a historian. And for me, there are unmistakable parallels between the way how, quote unquote, old Europe, represented at that time by Britain and France, reacted to the rise of Nazi Germany. There was a lot of wishful thinking involved. The, no one wanted to go to war. And uh, the idea was that the appeasement Israeli Israeli solution. And uh, this is more or less the behavior of, again, old Europe this time around, with Germany being in the, in the leading seat when it comes to defining this, this policy. Uh, for Germany, the strategy when uh, making more money with Russia meant making peace worked for a long period of time since the early 1970s. That's when the Soviet Union started to export oil and gas to Central Europe, to Eastern and Central Europe. And that's where the policy of uh, Ostpolitik was introduced, the, the policy of the tank was there. And it looked like that it produced results. The Berlin uh, Wall fell, right? So the strategy worked. Why change it? The trick was that the wall changed. Russia of Putin was not the Soviet Union of Mikhail Gorbachev or even of Leonid Brezhnev. It was much more aggressive revisionist power, much more aggressive than was the Soviet Union. But uh, Germans continued basically on the old track, the Russian invasion of uh, Georgia. Their response was, let's build um, North Stream 1. The Russian annexation of the Crimea, the start of the war in Ukraine, let's let's build Nord Stream 2. The idea was, okay, we will engage Russians with trade, and somehow they would be less prone to, to go to war. In reality, what was happening, the uh, Europe, old Europe, partially new Europe as well, in exchange for Russian gas, was sending more and more money to Russia, uh, really making uh, Putin's rearmament possible and uh, really contributing in that way to this war. You mentioned at the beginning of that answer there the comparisons with the the policy of appeasement and the rise of Nazi Germany and Adolf Hitler and therefore the the Second World War. As a historian, how useful do you find that comparison? I mean, to some extent, it obviously illuminates certain truths about the regime and and its nature, but do you find that sometimes the metaphor goes too far? How do you feel about employing it? Do you find it a useful thing to employ I certainly find it useful. I also find it frightening. Frightening in the sense that the parallels are so clear, so striking. Mostly people, when they talk about the the, the parallels, they talk about the Nazis, and the question is whether Putin's regime is fascist or not, and there is a debate going on there. But for me, uh, the, the the most striking parallel is uh, actually of, of a different of a different kind. It's not about the comparison of the Russian ideology of Putinism and let's say Nazism. Uh, for me, the, this parallel is of a different kind. You see um, great uh, depression in the late twenties and early thirties, and as a result of that, you see the rise of the uh, xenophobia in general, isolationism different forms of nationalism, populism, rise of uh, authoritarian tendencies and autocratic regimes. And uh, if you don't see that after the Great Recession that we went through, you certainly don't want to see certain things because that's that's exactly the parallel with what was happening in the 1930s. 
Looking at Germany of the late 30s and Russia of the beginning of this century, again, the parallels are striking. The two countries, they lost the war that in case of Germany, that was World War One, and in case of the Soviet Union, that was the Cold War. And um, they are dealing with the question of the so-called divided nation. Uh, the Germans are obsessed with bringing together within the borders of one greater Germany of uh, the Germans or German speakers. Putin's Russia starts to be obsessed with annexation of the territories and bringing Crimea, let's say, back home. So the parallels between the annexation of Crimea and Anschluss of um, Austria are, again, very obvious, and they were made, those comparisons and those parallels were drawn by Western historians were not the first to point to that there were Russian historians like Professor Zubov of the Moscow Institute of International Relations, who eventually lost his job for, for publishing you know, things like that. So, uh, yeah, for me, parallels are unmistakable and they're frightening in the way that somehow I and probably many others are linked with this belief that somehow we as humanity, we learn from our past, we learn from our mistakes. And uh, looking at these parallels, really uncomfortable idea comes to mind that actually we don't learn or we don't learn enough. I've just got one more question on the sort of geopolitics and all of that but then I want to go a little more granular so we've talked about old Europe and its relationship with what's happening right at the end of the book you talk about well essentially the failure of the Kremlin's policy that instead of this war instead of producing a multipolar world like Putin wanted we're actually back in a bipolar world with the center of powers are Beijing and Washington could you put this the full-scale invasion the Russo-Ukrainian war into that international context how is it impacted on the relationship of China and the US, what impact has this war had on the two dominant global superpowers? One of the key reasons for Putin going to this war was the doctrine that really was developed back in the 1990s by Prime Minister for a short period of time of Russia, Primakov, who was one of the advisors to Gorbachev, then the head of the Russian Foreign Intelligence and eventually the Prime Minister, who formulated this idea of multipolar world. The Russia wasn't happy with relations with the United States, so denounced the unipolar world, the American world, that emerged after the end of the Cold War, and then the model was multipolar world, in which Russia would emerge as one of the poles. But the trick was that Russia could do that only if it somehow mastered the resources of the entire post-Soviet space. And uh, getting Ukraine into some form of Eurasian Union led by Russia was absolutely essential for the success of the project because Ukraine happened to be the second largest post-Soviet republic in terms of the population, economic output, and so on and so forth. And um, the war started in 2014 over the issue of uh, Ukraine signing association agreement with European Union, which would make Ukraine not eligible for joining any other union, in particular Eurasian. But the war produced really very, very different results. We see significant weakening, if not implosion, of uh, Russia's power, militarily power, certainly in the first place. Economically, Russia is doing a little bit better than expected under the pressure of the sanctions, but still it's not growing economy, it's not a prosperous economy, it is weaker than it was before, and tremendous, tremendous blow to Russia's prestige and international standing. If the leader of the country is wanted for, for crimes by the international court, that's just one of the markers of how declined the Russian standing of the international arena had become how, how low it is. Now, on the other hand, you see that um, West is being reunited on, to the degree that it, it was not for a long period of time since the end of the Cold War. There is a re rebuilding of the transatlantic alliance. There is a unity between the United States on the one hand and uh, Europe, old and new Europe. Now they're all united. So the West, from that point of view, is stronger than it was even at the time, at the time of the Cold War, at least territorially, territorially, it's, it's a much bigger place. 
And uh, Russia, on the other hand, is moving closer and closer to, to China. So we are not yet in bipolar world. And I was trying to be careful to, not to suggest that. But what I'm absolutely sure of is that this war, instead of really giving a boost to the idea of the multipolar world, accelerated tendency toward the creation of the bipolar world. Whether we would arrive there or not, this is a different question, but certainly that war today, as we speak about that in late May of 2023, certainly contributes to that, to some sort, you're getting, again, I am as a historian, getting the sense of deja vu, in a sense, this is a Cold War type of situation. Now, what that really would mean when it comes to the relations between the United States and, and China, we will see the, the big the big issue, the big question is, of course, Taiwan and the impact that this war and clearly failure of uh, Putin in Ukraine, the impact that it would have on the thinking in Beijing. And uh, it looks like there is basically consensus that now she would have to think twice. It was more than twice before re-launching any sort of military operation war over over Taiwan. So clearly the impact is there, but the war is not over, and we don't yet fully know also what, what the impact of that war would be. The big unknown in the story of this war is, of course, what would be China's position, let's say, three months from now, or one year from now. Because that, if China decides to change the position, that can be a game changer. History as well as being, to some extent, quite abstract based on models and structures of thought and so on, it's also made up of thousands and millions of individual stories, the people, men, women and children who have been impacted by this war. As a historian, are there any individual stories from the past year and a half that really stand out to you, that you come back to, that out of every single story we've heard? The stories are of basically young people volunteering to fight and they're doing that knowing very well that they not just risk their lives, they can lose their lives. Some of them I met, others I never met before, but I knew them from Facebook, that they were someone who read my books, my work, so that's really very close to me. And uh, in one case, uh, there is a young person who was a historian, started at Uppsala University, and um, was killed last summer near Bakhmut. And the last photo that, one of the last photos that was taken of him was him reading my book, The Forgotten Bastards of the Eastern Front, and his brother, uh, former Ukrainian ambassador to Canada, now Deputy Minister of Defense of Ukraine, sent me that photo. And I dedicate the book to people who fallen in that war, one my cousin and another is this young man, Lieutenant Oleferenko. I didn't think that that would happen, but the French publisher of the book asked for that photo and decided eventually to put it on the cover. So that young man will do the cover of my book. So this is this is one of the stories that of course touched me on. When talking about Russia and Vladimir Putin, through this interview, you've used words like failure has come up a lot. Failure of his project, the failure of his vision. Maybe it's too early to say, but how do you think Vladimir Putin will be remembered by history, by historians? For me, it's quite clear that one of the motivating factors of Putin going to war was the question of legacy, his legacy. And he was thinking about his legacy in terms of the gathering of the Russian lands, or the rebuilding in a different form, the Russian great power status, and, and control over either entire post-Soviet space or significant part with it. And um, this is certainly that is not happening. And uh, on contrary, he really initiated the policy that is, of course, absolutely terrible for countries like Ukraine, for the world in general, but it's also very damaging for Russia. And I would uh, think that uh, no matter what he would try to do to really somehow improve his record, and improve his record actually would mean more war and more more suffering, 
that there was nothing he could do to go down in history as as, as a big hero that he was dreaming about. Sahi, is there anything we haven't spoken about that you think is important for our listeners to understand or to hear? I just want to say that I really hope that my book will help them make sense out of that uh, really barrage of the news that comes on the daily basis. And it's very easy to get lost in, in this in this news. It's also there is a fog of war. There are special information operations coming from all sides. And I really hope that my book will help to my readers to find way with that enormous uh, amount of information and misinformation. Sahi Blocky, thank you so much for your time. It's been really, really interesting. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first three months for just £1 at www.telegraph.co.uk forward slash Ukraine the latest. We'll sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a Ukraine live blog on our website, where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day, including insights from regular contributors to this podcast. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm London time each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. To our listeners on YouTube, please note that due to issues beyond our control, there is sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload. So if you want to hear Ukraine the latest as soon as it is released, do refer to the podcast apps. If you appreciated this podcast, please consider following Ukraine the latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. And you can contact us directly on Twitter. You can find our Twitter handles in the description for this episode. As ever, we are especially interested to hear where you are listening from around the world. Ukraine The Latest was produced by Giles Gear, and the executive producers are David Knowles and Louisa Wells.